Hello, everyone, and welcome to For the Record, the 70s. This is the place where we take a deep dive into the intersection of the music, politics, and culture of the 70s. This is Amy, your host for this one-woman, one-mic show. Today, we have a literal intersection of music, politics, and culture. We're going to take a look at how pop and rock music were used to encourage the youth vote, especially after the ratification of the 26th Amendment. But first, thank you to all of my listeners, new and veteran. I have no advertisers on this show, so all that I ask is that you tell someone if you like what you hear and that you give a nice rating on your podcast app so that others can find us. Old enough to die, old enough to vote. That was the slogan for the pro-26th Amendment crowd during the Vietnam War. It has always been true that young people fight and die in wars, and Vietnam was most definitely no exception to that. The average age of American soldiers was 19, but in most states, you had to be 21 to vote. This was not the first time it had come up since Franklin Roosevelt lowered the draft eligibility age to 18 during World War II. Even Dwight Eisenhower had supported lowering the voting age to 18. Uh, President Lyndon Johnson supported it as well. It just never really got any traction until the 60s, which was the era of so many other social movements. Uh, Maybe it was our national twinge of conscience over Vietnam that helped push it through this time, because when the Supreme Court ruled in December 1970 that Congress did not have the authority to change the voting age, the 26th, 26th Amendment was proposed by Congressman Jennings Randolph of West Virginia for the second time. He did it the first time during World War II. It only took four months to ratify. Do you know how hard it is to amend the Constitution? I mean, it should be hard to change the Constitution. But to get two-thirds of both houses of Congress to agree on a thing, will we ever see that again? I don't know. At any rate, On March 23, 1971, Congress approved the 26th Amendment to the Constitution, and it was certified by President Richard Nixon on July 1, 1971. And with that, 11 million more people were now eligible to vote. So how do you reach these young voters? You go where they are. Today, you might go to YouTube. In the early 70s, you met them in music, pop and rock music. It did not take long until we had public service announcements. Here are a couple of PSAs from the Beach Boys in 1971. This is Dennis Wilson of the Beach Boys. One of the few ways it's possible to change things around in this world is through the vote. Well, we've got the vote now for everyone over 18 or 18. Put the power of your vote in your hip pocket. Please register to vote now. This is Carl Wilson of the Beach Boys. Everywhere we've been going lately, we've been talking a little bit about power. Power each of us, 18 or older, now has to try and get things on the right track in this country. Please put the power of the vote in your hip pocket. It's easy to do. Just register to vote. Now, you might be thinking, the Beach Boys, weren't they kind of a 60s group? Uh, Yes, they were much more popular in the 60s than they were in the 70s. But remember... You're going after 18 and 19-year-olds who grew up on their music. So again, you're, you're meeting them where they are. 
The ratification of the 26th Amendment in 1971 makes 1972 the first year in which 18-year-old voters can cast a ballot for president of the United States. Richard Nixon was the incumbent, and he was running for re-election. You might remember hearing about a scandal associated with that campaign, something to do with a break-in at the Watergate Hotel. I'm sure you've heard of it. Nixon's main opponent was George McGovern. McGovern was a World War II pilot, a senator from South Dakota, and one of the last true liberals to get the Democratic nomination for president. It should also be noted that Congresswoman Shirley Chisholm, the first African-American to seek a major, major party nomination, also ran as a Democrat in this election. However, McGovern was going to get the Democratic nomination. He said he would withdraw American troops from Vietnam if he was elected president. In 1971-72, this was now Nixon's war. And for the anti-war baby boomers, or even just the anti-Nixon baby boomers, McGovern was their man. In the late 1960s, John Lennon had been establishing himself as a political activist. Yes, he was British, but he would also become a New Yorker, and he was most definitely not going to keep his opinions about American politics to himself. In fact, I can't think of much that John Lennon kept to himself. Uh, Now, when American politics were impacting global politics, he especially felt compelled to speak out. He married Yoko Ono in March 1969, and John and Yoko used their honeymoon to stage a peace protest that they called a bed-in. It was essentially John and Yoko in bed for a week, giving interviews about peace. Um, First they did it in Amsterdam, and then they did it in Montreal. They wanted to do this in New York, but they were not permitted into the country. Lenin was not permitted into the country. He had a little bit of a problem with a previous uh, arrest due to possession of marijuana. Now, if a bed-in sounds kind of silly, well, Lenin said that was the point. What was the craziest thing that they could do in the name of peace? While they were in Montreal, they invited a few guests to sing a song, guests like Tommy Smothers, who played the guitar, and the beat poet Allen Ginsberg, and Timothy Leary of LSD fame. And here is what they came up with. Two, one, two, three, four.
If it sounds like that they are uh, banging on random things in a hotel room, they are. Uh, that was recorded live on June 1st, 1969 in room 1742 at the Queen Elizabeth Hotel in Montreal. Give Peace a Chance became a worldwide anthem for peace. Lenin was not done with peace anthems. Two years later, on October 11th, 1971, he released this. Those of us old enough to remember when John Lennon was shot and killed in December 1980, boy, how many times did we hear that song in the days and weeks after his death? Imagine was released as a single in the United States three months after the 26th Amendment was certified by Richard Nixon. It went to number three on the Billboard charts, but that really is beside the point uh, with that song. Again, another global anthem for peace. By the way, a sidebar here, Imagine was inspired by Yoko Ono's poetry in her 1964 book, Grapefruit. Lennon took sole songwriting credit for it, although he uh, did not ever deny that she was involved in writing it. She finally got credit for writing that song 48 years later uh, in 2017. A couple of months after the release of Imagine, on December 10th, 1971, Uh, John and Yoko performed at a concert in Ann Arbor, Michigan, that was on behalf of John Sinclair, a local musician and a political activist who happened to make the very unfortunate decision to sell marijuana to two undercover police officers. I think it was the equivalent of two joints, two cigarettes, and was sentenced to nine and a half to 10 years in prison. Also performing that night at this concert, Stevie Wonder, Bob Seger, again, Allen Ginsberg, the beat poet, read a poem, Bobby Seale, the co-founder of the Black Panther Party, and Jerry Rubin was there. He is one of the most well-known political activists of of that era. He spoke at that concert as well. It cost you $3 to see that show live, or if you were in the vicinity of Michigan, you could listen on the radio. An article in the New York Daily News said about that show, The sight and sound of the massed humanity carried an immediately inescapable impact. The potential power of the new young voter in creating, 
and changing legislation. And you know what happened? John Sinclair was set free on Monday morning. Imagine that. So, uh, John Lennon is on a bit of a a political roll, I guess. Um, He has released a couple of peace anthems. It was also the year, uh, in December 1971, that was also uh, when he released Happy Christmas, War is Over. And we have journalists starting to take note of the potential of reaching young voters, new voters at concerts. So, John Lennon had a plan. Well, this is the legend. It never actually came to fruition because he ended up getting into a whole lot of legal trouble. Uh, But he thought, you know, maybe I could do a tour, an anti-Richard Nixon tour in 1972 and follow Richard Nixon around the country, and then we could end up with a three-day music festival outside of the Republican National Convention in Miami. Now, could John Lennon bring Richard Nixon down by engaging these new 11 million voters? Well, it seems like Richard Nixon kind of thought maybe he could. That tour did not happen because Lennon drew the attention of the FBI. This was set in motion, at least in part, by South Carolina Senator Strom Thurmond, uh, an unapologetic racist and white supremacist who authored the Southern Manifesto in 1956. The purpose of that document was to rally white Southerners against Brown versus Board of Education and to resist any other steps toward legally ending segregation. So in 1972, Strom Thurmond said, hey, maybe we ought to keep an eye on John Lennon. And the fact that this was actually taken seriously, the fact that the FBI followed John Lennon around because of some of his songs and because he was a rather outspoken um, activist, but celebrity, I guess that'd be probably the most accurate way to describe him, shows you a couple of things. It shows you how far right our national politics were moving in the 70s. Yes, Jimmy Carter was elected in 1976. That was a bit of a blip um, helped along by his uh, fellow Southerners and by the nation's kind of distaste for what was going on uh, with with Watergate, which was over, but we kind of wanted to put a final uh, period at the end of that sentence. So the Reagan era is dead ahead. It's also showing us that, yeah, I mean, you probably could mobilize actors, uh, singers, and other celebrities to get together for a political cause. The question is, are the fans going to be interested? Is that what they want? Are they going to turn out for that sort of thing? After one performance of this anti-Nixon tour, the federal government said that John Lennon should be deported due to that marijuana conviction that I mentioned that occurred in 1968. Now, that happened in England, but that was enough of a reason for the United States government to say, nope, uh, this is a narcotics arrest, and you uh, cannot legally be here in the United States anymore. So instead of being on tour, John Lennon was tied up in immigration court for the next year and a half. Now, just because John Lennon could not do his anti-Nixon tour it did not mean that others could not. Uh, 70s heartthrob and sex symbol extraordinaire Warren Beatty launched a series of rock and rhetoric rallies in 1972. He said in 1976 
that it wasn't that he was so much in love with George McGovern or his politics, but he really, really hated Nixon. And he hated him so much that he was willing to devote his time and energy into trying to make sure that Nixon was not reelected. Now, Beatty is an actor, of course, but he was an A-list actor, and he had friends high up on the celebrity totem pole. So even actors who had no place being on a stage to sing with the likes of, say, Joni Mitchell or Barbara Streisand or Carol King or Quincy Jones did agree to be ushers at these concerts. Imagine Jack Nicholson ushering you to your seat. You didn't have to imagine it. If you had $100 for a ticket, that was the cost of 2,000 of the tickets that were sold for the show in Los Angeles. You could also get in for four bucks too. If $100 sounds like a lot of money in 1972, it was. But these were the superstars of the 70s. Uh, Consider Barbara Streisand. She was not doing live performances at that time. She was uh, busy with her movie career. So when Warren Beatty recruited her to perform at the benefit for George McGovern in L.A., that was a major score. And then she's backed by Quincy Jones and his orchestra. So much the better. So for $4 or for $100 on April 5th, 1972 at the Los Angeles Forum, you could hear Carol King perform live, James Taylor perform live, and then around 11 o'clock, out comes Barbara Streisand. This was a time when she was trying to transition from Broadway singer to more of this rock pop sound. And this song, Stony End, was on her playlist. Streisand could sing the McDonald's menu and it would sound good. The title track to the 1971 album Stony End is a cover of Laura Nero's song. Laura Nero does an excellent version of her own song too. And this made it to number six on the Billboard pop chart. Of course, very upsetting to some of Barbara's fans who thought it was too much pop. So did Barbara have any regrets about supporting the candidate who got crushed in a landslide in the 1972 election? Remember now, this is not just about encouraging young people to vote. This was about encouraging them to vote for a specific candidate. Uh, This is what she said in 2010 at an American Film Institute award ceremony for Warren Beatty. I did get to be in one Warren Beatty production the concert for George McGovern in 1972. I wasn't doing live 
performances then, but Warren is very persuasive and impressive, as a matter of fact. He masterminded everything from the invitations to getting famous people as ushers, like Jack Nicholson, Burt Lancaster, Cass Elliot, I remember, yeah. And after all the, the insecurity and stage fright, I was really glad that uh, Warren made me perform because it was for a man I truly admire. Senator McGovern, America would have been so much better off the past 36 years if you had spent just a little time in the White House. So please stand up and let us thank you for all you've done for our country. So that's a no. Uh, no regrets from Barbara Streisand. The Rock and Rhetoric shows had uh, kind of this rotating cast around the country, and they raised hundreds of thousands of dollars for McGovern. It was the first time that our A-list musicians did not just say, go vote, but they said, go vote for this candidate. Uh, Joni Mitchell raised money for McGovern, Paul Simon, the list goes on. One musician that did a benefit for McGovern was a guy who was not really known on a national level yet. That was Bruce Springsteen. Two months after Nixon was reelected, Bruce Springsteen and the E Street Band released their debut album, Greetings from Asbury Park. You could make the argument that late-night television, or late-late-night television, depending on your time zone, was born out of the 26th Amendment. The Midnight Special was a show that featured live music by a wide variety of bands and musicians. And I mean live, not lip-synced like American Bandstand or Soul Train, and I'm not knocking either one of those shows at all. I'm just saying they did lip-syncing. Rock, uh, pop, country, even comedy, they were all represented by this show that was created by Burt Sugarman. And at this point in Sugarman's career, he was most noted for producing game shows. The pilot for the Midnight Special aired in August 1972, and it was a 90-minute special encouraging young people to vote in the upcoming presidential election. The host was John Denver, who was riding this wave of success from Take Me Home Country Roads and was about to have even more success with Rocky Mountain High. Here is John Denver talking about voting with the former singer from the Mamas and the Papas, Cass Elliott, who Barbara Streisand, by the way, just mentioned in the clip that I just played. Here's Denver and Cass Elliott. Hiya, Cass. Hiya, John. How you doing? Fine and dandy. I'm great, too. I didn't ask you how you were. <laughs> well, I, I like to say it once in a while because it makes me feel Just to better. remind yourself. Sure, you sure. Okay. You know how That's it is. That's all right. You know, I'm really glad you're here tonight because as you, this is about voter registration. I and know. I know that you've done a lot of work about that yourself. Yeah, we're all just getting ready for a big push. This is very important, you know. Um, if I could, I don't know whether who's been talking about it so far on the show, but uh, I've been traveling around the country for the past year or so talking about our college campuses and trying to find out exactly what people are thinking. And the thing that's impressed me the most is uh, there is still in this country, believe it or not, after all the talk, a tremendous amount of apathy mm -hmm. on the part of people who maybe don't like the way things are going and maybe want to change it, but don't do anything about it. You yeah. know? And your vote and my vote is not any more important than anybody else's. They are equally as important and very important. And that's why we're all here to get everybody to get out and register. I don't think it's so important who you vote for. You vote for who you believe in. Mm -hmm. But the important thing is to vote because it's our way and it's the best way. And that's why I'm here. And that's why you're here too. That's great. Do it. 
And then right after that, Rock and Roll Hall of Famer Cass Elliott sang Leaving on a Jet Plane with uh, John Denver. Uh, I posted the video uh, of that performance on my show notes on FTR70.com. It was really a nice performance. Now, some of the performers in the pilot of the Midnight Special give you an idea of the show's very diverse musical lineup. Uh, Linda Ronstadt, Harry Chapin, the Isley Brothers, Helen Reddy, uh, the rock group Argent. Burt Sugarman had to pay out of his own pocket to get this show on the air, but it got picked up and it premiered as a weekly series on February 2nd, 1973, and it was on the air for 450 episodes until 1981. Now, if you were in the Midwest, it actually came on at midnight. It came on on Friday nights at midnight. I can confirm. Now, I was quite young in the 1970s. I was just a little girl. However, Fridays happened to be my parents' bowling night, so they didn't get home till later, so I often had a babysitter, so I stayed up and I watched the Midnight Special because it was one of the only opportunities I had to see um, some of the singers that I heard on the radio. My other opportunity was uh, generally American Bandstand, and if I was lucky, I got an episode or two of Soul Train in uh, in the early 70s. Now, when Johnny Carson cut his own show from 90 to 60 minutes, Midnight Special was able to move up for 30 minutes. This was an era, I mean, before the Midnight Special, when networks signed off at 1 o'clock in the morning. They would play the national anthem, and then all you got was static. Uh, until morning. But Sugarman's hunch that young people who were just arriving home from going out to bars or concerts would provide him an audience for a late, late music show was correct. The diversity of the music extended well beyond the pilot. I mean, the guest list is a veritable who's who of music. Baby King, the Bee Gees, Marvin Gaye, Alice Cooper, Jose Feliciano, Glenn Campbell, all sorts of great comedians. Uh, Richard Pryor was on Midnight Special. This was a big deal to many of the artists and to the fans because this may have been the first time that they had a chance to see some of these bands. It's not that music on TV was new, but rock and roll in particular had had a bit of an uneasy relationship with TV networks. One of those bands that made their television debut on the Midnight Special was the Doobie Brothers, who appeared on episode four, uh, four out of 450. They played uh, Jesus is Just All Right, and then they played this one, their first big hit, Listen to the Music.
from the album Toulouse Street. The song made it to number 11 on the Billboard charts in November 1972. That's the pre-Michael McDonald Doobie Brothers. Tom Johnston wrote that song and said, the lyrics came out of this utopian idea that if the leaders of the world got together on some grassy hill somewhere and either smoked enough dope or just sat down and just listened to the music and forgot about all this other bullshit, the world would be a much better place. Now, one of the things that rock bands worried about with the Midnight Special and the fact that they were not going to be lip syncing is what they would sound like live. So here are the Doobie Brothers on that actual episode. sound so bad. Now remember that part of the appeal, a big part of the appeal of Midnight Special was the opportunity to to see the bands. Uh, certainly you wanted good sound, but seeing them was important as well. Bert Sugarman said that the show's announcer, Wolfman Jack, had to convince some of these rock musicians to come out and play and to calm their nerves a little bit about how they might sound. Wolfman was a DJ and he is a legend. He, w- he served as the MC of Midnight Special, and he had this very distinctive, raspy, gravelly voice, and his own radio shows were legendary for his upbeat style, this uh, energetic way he had of not just presenting the music, but at times talking over the music. And in the 1960s, he became a radio icon. Here, listen to a little bit of Wolfman for yourself. XCRB rules up. 930 in Los Angeles. This is 50,000 watt clear channel XCRB. Radio North America, Central Studios, Los Angeles. 1090 on your dial. In uh, the summer of 1973, the first year of the Midnight Special, um, after the pilot, so the Midnight Special as a regular series, 
Wolfman Jack appeared on the big screen in the George Lucas movie, American Graffiti, in which he played a kind of a fictionalized version of himself. You remember that, right? Richard Dreyfuss's characters driving all around town uh, looking for the girl played by Suzanne Summers, And then he asks the Wolfman to dedicate a song to her. And Wolfman says, I'm not Wolfman. Anyway, if you haven't seen American Gra- Graffiti, go watch that. You know that we used to do that too, right? We would call radio stations and we would ask them to dedicate a song to someone, sometimes a friend or maybe a boyfriend or a girlfriend. Yeah, we did that. At any rate, Wolfman Jack was a star in the 70s, so much so that he got his own song. The band The Guess Who got a top 10 hit with this song from 1974, Clap for the Wolfman. Jack was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 1996, uh, the year after he died. And if you were wondering, hey, did the Guess Who play Clap for the Wolfman on the Midnight Special? Of course they did. In 1972, the Allman Brothers Band released the album Eat a Peach, and on it was this live version of One Way Out. Best Southern rock you will ever want to hear. 
Fast forward ahead to an Allman Brothers concert in 1976. They are going to open their show with One Way Out. Here's the intro to that show. I want to introduce to you my friends and your friends, the great Allman Brothers. Did you recognize that voice? That was Jimmy Carter. That's right. Future president Jimmy Carter out on the campaign trail introduces his friends, the Allman Brothers. In what universe are Jimmy Carter and a guy like Greg Allman friends? I'll tell you. In a universe where Jimmy Carter is friends with the president of Capricorn Records, the Allman Brothers record label. Now, truth be told, Jimmy Carter did end up becoming friends with Greg Allman. In fact, uh, he even went to Greg Allman's funeral. I've discussed this before on this podcast. But did the fans of the Allman Brothers, did they care about Jimmy Carter? Somebody would have to convince me that they cared. In 1976, we will see record executives exerting their authority over the bands on their label and the artists on their label and getting them to perform at benefit concerts for political candidates that they maybe did not care so much about. It was not so much about getting out the vote and encouraging voter registration as it was make some money for this candidate. In fact, before Carter got the Democratic nomination, California Governor Jerry Brown was in the race too. He and Carter both asked the fans at their benefit concerts to sign donation slips that would allow their ticket fees to be considered donations to the campaign and therefore eligible for matching federal funds. At a uh, Jerry Brown for President benefit in Maryland, it seems pretty clear that the most of the people who showed up were there to hear the Eagles and Jackson Brown and Linda Ronstadt. This is from Rolling Stone magazine in 1976. A random sampling of 20 ticket holders turned up only 10 who are registered to vote in Tuesday's Maryland primary. Of those, only six planned to go to the polls, and four of them were for Carter. Other comments from the crowd. I don't even know who he is. I'm going to vote for Carter. Brown talks too much and doesn't make enough sense. I'm for Ronald Reagan. I like the way he cuts all those cheats off of welfare. Linda Ronstadt, who, by the way, dated Jerry Brown, later said that she was done with politics. I just got tired of mixing up the message. I mean, if kids are there to listen to music, I don't want to ram politics down their throats. It ruins the magic of the music. I just think it's taking unfair advantage of the audience to sort of slip in some specific political message while they're captivated by your music. This is a debate that has continued to this day. Some celebrities believe that they not only should use their platform to discuss politics, but that they have the right to do so. And again, discussing politics could be a couple of different things. It could be, hey, go register to vote, or it could be, hey, register to vote and or vote for this candidate. Other people agree with what Linda Ronstadt said in 1976, and that if you have uh, an audience in front of you who has paid to hear entertainment, your music, 
then politics should not be part of the mix. Hey, yo, what's up? The president's first term, that's what's up. <laughs> hey, yo, don't get me wrong, because I'm not here to tell you what to do. You can go either way, but I am here to inform you that you do have a right, and that's your right to vote. Uh, you realize there's 26 million people all between the ages of 18 and 24? 26 million people. Man, we can make a crazy difference. As a matter of fact, we could start a revolution and we could rock the vote. So let's do that. That's Marky Mark, Mark Wahlberg, in 1992 with a PSA for Rock the Vote, uh, an organization that formed in 1990 because having the right to vote and using the right to vote are not the same thing. The 26th Amendment added 11 million people to the list of eligible voters in 1971. Half of them voted in 1972, but that also means that half did not. In fact, it has been true since then that the youngest voters are the least likely to vote, whether it's because they do not think it matters or they don't know how to register or they are politically disinterested or politically disenfranchised, they do not vote in the numbers that they could. So here's my PSA. If you are not registered to vote, do it. Do it today. If there are people in your life, especially young people, kids or grandkids who are 18 or above, talk to them about registering to vote. In fact, maybe even show them how. It is your right to have a voice, so use it. That is all for this episode of For the Record, the 70s. If you like the show, tell somebody. All of my sources are on my website, ftr70.com, and you can follow the show on Instagram at 70 Podcast. Thanks so much for listening. Bye, everybody.